Today, we're starting a new series, as you saw from the change in our preview video. We're today in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Um, most of you know, perhaps, that West Point, New York, is the location of the U.S. Military Academy. That's where our future military leaders are trained. The Army trains their officers there. 14,000 people a year apply to get into West Point. It's very prestigious. Only 1,200 get accepted. And those that get accepted, you can imagine, are the best of the best. They're at the top of their high school class, most of them varsity athletes. Uh, they could get into any school in America, but they choose to go there because they want to serve their country and they want to lead. Now, the very first thing that happens at West Point, you have 90 seconds, literally 90 seconds to say goodbye to your family, and then you enter into a process that they call beast. I don't know what the what the actual name is, but that, that's, what the, that's what they call it at West Point. It's a seven-week process where from five in the morning to 10 p.m. every day, seven days a week, you are either on the, on the athletic fields doing exercises or you're in the classroom learning. Uh, aside from your meal times, you are theirs all those hours of the day. Seven weeks, and understandably, there are lots of cadets that drop out before Beast is over. So several years ago, the Army brought in a psychologist named Angela Duckworth, and they wanted her to study what makes the difference between the kids, the, the, the cadets who make it through Beast and those who don't, because they wanted to know, what do we need to do better to choose the right people? Now, within the Army, there were some disagreements. There were th some theories. Some thought it was mainly physical. It's people who had a certain physical constitution, maybe uh, strength, physical endurance. Others thought it was, it was more one of the different domains of intelligence, people who were better at math or people who are better at science or are better with verbal skills. But in the end, it, her research showed it was none of those things. It was nothing you could measure on a track or on a chin-up bar or an SAT test, but it was something she called grit. And she defined grit as a combination of passion and perseverance. The, the cadets that made it all the way through Beast were those that really wanted to be officers. That was their passion. And they were willing to put up with any amount of pain, sacrifice, hardship, self-denial that it took to get there. Now, grit is not a word that you'll find in the Bible. But there are two words that you will find over and over and over again in the Bible that sound a lot like what she was talking about. And those are the words endurance, endurance, and steadfastness. Endurance is, I will not be stopped. I'm going to get to my goal. Nothing will stop me from reaching the goal, no matter how hard it is, no matter how far I have to run. And, and steadfastness is, I will not be moved. Nobody will make me stop believing what I know is true, standing up for the truth. Even if I'm the only one in my company, the only one in my neighborhood, the only one in my family, I'm going to stand firm for Jesus Christ. Those ideas are found over and over and over in the Scriptures, and we need that today. That's why I'm starting this series today. We need grit. We need endurance and steadfastness like never before. Because let's face it, we are the most affluent nation in the history of the world. And you may say, well, I'm not affluent. Well, compared to the rest of the world, you are. And affluence, there's a lot of good things about it. I'm thankful that I'd, I don't have to go through the hardships that my parents and especially my grandparents went through, a great depression and a world war. And yet, affluence doesn't breed grit. It breeds entitlement. And there's a reason why so many marriages break up, so many churches dwindle and die or split, so many people have good intentions to change their bad habits and they never do. So many of us have these dreams that we're going to make a difference in the world and then we come up short. And listen, 
If you're standing here saying, well, Jeff, I've messed up, I've failed, I've quit on certain good things, I'm not condemning you. Understand, that is a common human expression, a common human experience. And if you would say to me, well, you know, I I struggle with depression, or I struggle with anxiety, or I struggle with addiction, or some other uh, mental or emotional issue that makes it hard, I get that. There are members of my family that struggle through each of those things, and so I know those are real obstacles, and yet God's Holy Spirit can build into you endurance and steadfastness that will enable you to, to stand every test. And that's what, what, I, what I want to talk to you about through this series. We're going to look at different moments in life when grit is especially needed and where we can find it for those moments. But today, we're going to talk specifically about the kind of grit we need to be a part of the body of Christ. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh... And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that last verse when it says, not neglecting to gather together as is the habit of some, that's a way of reminding us, of telling us that even in the first century, there were people dropping out of church, walking away. And we can easily understand why. These were Jewish Christians. The book of Hebrews is called that because it's written primarily to Jewish Christians in the first century. And think about it, if you were a Jew in first century Rome, you were part of a tiny minority that was seen as odd, if not dangerous. And then if you were a Jewish Christian, you were between a rock and a hard, hard place because even your fellow Jews looked down on you. I mean, if you were engaged to be married and you came, came up and said, I, I now believe Jesus was the Messiah, your engagement would be ended. The family would not let you marry that person anymore. Your own family would probably turn you out and say, okay, once you get your head back together, you can come back and, and eat in our, our home. But, but until then, no. I'm sure most of these people had, had suffered some incredible relational damage and, and income damage. They had, they had lost jobs. They had lost income because of their faith in Christ and because of the ostracism that that brought. So think about how easy it would be for someone like that to say to themselves, I don't have to stop believing in Jesus as Messiah and Savior, but maybe I can just stop going to that worship gathering on Sunday mornings and, and instead go back to the synagogue and go back to the temple and start offering my sacrifices again because at least then my whole community won't hate me. Now we live in a time, I'm sure you're aware, when many churches are struggling. A time when, when there, there are people dropping out of church on a, on a rampant basis. And some of them, it's because, honestly, the church did it. The church hurt them in some way. And maybe you're in that camp. And if you are and you're here today, I want to say thank you. Thank you for your courage to come back. But for others, it's that there are so many places where the gospel is not being preached as it is in the scriptures. If you were taught a gospel that's not true, that's not biblical, then it's not going to stand the test when you experience difficult trials. And then for so many people, it's just the fact that life gets crazy. 
COVID knocked a whole lot of people out of church and, and they just got used to watching online and they just haven't come back yet. And then others would say, well, it's, it's my kids are involved in so many things or my work has gotten so stressful. And then you, you get out of that habit and you, you just don't come back. You know, this is a command of God. Do not neglect gathering together. I grew up in, in a church a lot like this, just shrink it down to much smaller but the same kind of doctrine, the same kind of teaching. And I was told over and over again, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Going to church doesn't save you. And that's absolutely true. You know, what, you know the old saying, right? You can't sit in your garage and hope to become a Buick. Well, you can't sit in church and hope to become a Christian. That's not what it's for. And yet that doesn't mean that coming to Sunday morning worship is therefore optional. I mean, technically eating is optional too, but nobody wants to live that way, do we? We want sustenance. We want strength. And that's what this is for. We are called to gather together. And if we don't do it, we will suffer. We will suffer the, the pains of disobedience. So what can we do to build that kind of grit in ourselves? So that someday in the future, when someone in this church frustrates you, and that will happen, I promise you. Someday in the future, when I let you down, I promise you with all my heart, I know that I will hurt your feelings at some point or disappoint you in some way if I haven't already because I'm human. And when that happens and, and when life gets crazy and, and your mind says, you know, the easiest way to catch up is just to not go to church. I, I'll, I'll go back next week. Just, I'll just skip it this week. When those kinds of things happen, how do we make sure that we have the kind of grit inside of us that we're going to continue to be committed to the body of Christ as he has commanded us to be? How are we going to build that kind of grit in these students who are sitting here in these front three or four rows? They're the next generation. There's some powerful leaders in the student ministry. We don't want them to get discouraged. We want to build in them that tenacity, that grit, that endurance and steadfastness so that in the future, they will be leaders of this church or whatever church God brings them to. Your children, your grandchildren. How do we do this? There are three imperative verbs in this passage. So that means there are three commandments that I want to look at. And the first one is in verse 24. He says, stir up one another. Stir up one another to love and good works. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand about this because we don't practice this kind of radical confession at First Baptist Church, Conroe, but have you ever said the following words to yourself upon leaving church? I didn't get anything out of that. Sermon was boring. They didn't sing any of my favorite songs. The people that I love weren't there for whatever reason, so I should have just stayed at home. I think we've all said that at some point. And let, let me ask you something, though, and, and I love you. I hope you know that I love you, so I'm saying this in love. Why do we think that what happens here on Sunday mornings is for us? Why do we think it's primarily for us, that we're the customers? Why do we think this all happens with us primarily in mind? I mean, we all do, but where do we find that in the Scriptures? I'll just jump ahead for you. It's not in the scriptures. That's not the idea. Notice he says, don't stop gathering together, but encourage each other. So it's not about us. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that if I'm doing my job as a pastor, then the sermons should inspire you. 
and should make a difference in your life. I believe that, that our worship ministry's purpose is to guide us into the presence of Christ and to fill us with those emotions and that, that sense and actually teach us good theology as those, the lyrics of those songs do. I, I believe that life group time should be times of laughter and joy and, and building one another up in love and getting into the word of God together. It's something you don't wanna miss. But what if, what if none of that is the reason God brought you here today? What if, I know we always think, okay, I'm coming to church. I know God's got something to say to me, and maybe he does. But what if the reason, the real reason God brought you to church today is because he knew there was somebody in this place that needed a word of encouragement from you, you specifically. Somebody maybe who was here for the first time, and and your job is to go make them feel welcome and to say, I'm glad you're here today. I hope you come back. Are you doing anything for lunch today? Maybe there's somebody here that is maybe somebody in your life group, for instance, that is pulling a heavy burden. They're just packing the weight of the world on their shoulders and they need somebody to come alongside and say, hey, I'm with you. I will pray for you. Maybe your life group leader or some other volunteer is struggling right now with discouragement and has talked themselves into the fact that they're not doing any good and they just need to quit. And your, your word, your word of encouragement could be the thing that pulls them back from the brink and makes them think, no, I'm gonna keep on pushing because this person encouraged me. You can make that kind of difference. I, I read a story about a guy about my age, a pastor about my age, who had never finished his, his master's degree in seminary, so uh, his, his church allowed him to go back and take classes and, and finish out that master's in divinity. And he got there, and of course, everybody there was half his age, except this one guy, this one fellow student who happened to be a black pastor, and, and so halfway through the semester, he finally, he finally got out of his desk and walked across the room and said to that man, hey, listen, you and I, we could be the dads of any of these kids, so uh, why don't we go out to lunch and, and just get to know each other? And they did, and they became good friends. So years passed, and, and the black pastor invited the white pastor to come and preach at his church. And before he got up to preach, uh, he, his friend got up and in- introduced him. He said, brothers and sisters, you know that several years ago, I went back to school and got my degree. And, and I have to tell you, about halfway through, I was getting real discouraged because I was the oldest guy there and, and nobody looked like me. And I was just all alone. I felt, I felt like completely isolated. And, and I said one morning, Lord, I'm going to school today. But if nobody talks to me, if nobody tries to be my friend, that's it. I'm quitting. I'm giving up. I'm sorry. I just can't do it anymore. And that's the day this brother came up and asked me to lunch. So you don't know who's right on the verge of quitting unless you say what you need to say, unless you speak a word of encouragement. I'm challenging you on Sunday mornings, get your heart ready for worship. Spend at least as much time getting your heart ready as you do your, your outer appearance. I know most of you spend a lot, of, I can look at a few of you and see you don't spend a lot of time on that, but just kidding. Don't look at your neighbor when I say that, no. But make sure you're preparing your own heart. Lord, help me to mean the words that I sing. Lord, help me to give with a cheerful heart. Help me to greet others in the way that I should and see them through eyes of love. Help me to hear whatever you have to say to me, but also pray, Lord, if there's somebody here today that needs a word of encouragement from me, help me to deliver it. And by the way, 
That's not just for Sunday mornings. That word stir up literally means to provoke. It's an aggressive kind of word. Like if they had football in the first century, that's the word they would have used for what a coach does on the sidelines. Not that I'm encouraging yelling and screaming and cussing, but think about it. Does a coach sit there on the bench waiting for the quarterback to walk up and say, hey coach, can you tell me what you thought about my last interception? No, the coach seeks him out. The coach seeks out the guy who, who failed to block, the guy who, who destroyed the quarterback. No, you be the person who seeks people out and seeks opportunities to build them up in Christ. Stir up one another to love and good, good works. Number two, hold fast to hope. In verse 23, it says it. It also says it in chapter six where it calls hope an anchor to our souls. So what is hope? Hope is one of my favorite concepts in the whole Bible. Hope is the idea that good things are coming and we know that they're coming. See, we use the word hope outside of scripture in a way that's much weaker. We use hope to mean, I wish this were true. So we'll say, for instance, I hope there's a cold front that's gonna come in the next couple of weeks, or I hope the Texans win today. Now we know neither one of those things are likely to happen, right? But when the Bible says hope, it means I know. I know this is happening. I know this is coming. I just don't possess it yet. And the knowledge that it is coming gives me the strength to press on. So my favorite illustration of this is Thanksgiving morning when you and I, we happy souls that aren't charged with roasting the turkey or baking the pie, we're out in the living room and we're catching up with cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents and we can smell that good stuff coming from the kitchen and our stomach starts to rumble and ordinarily that would be distressing. Ordinarily that would mean, oh, well, I, I guess I need to get back in the car and drive down the street to Burger King or Taco Bell and continue the process of slowly poisoning myself to death. But instead we say, no, I'm going to wait because something better is coming. Something good is right around the corner. I'm going to wait until I can feast with my family. And that's where we are as God's people. We know there's a feast coming for us. In a minute, when we take the Lord's Supper, that's a reminder, there is a feast coming when Christ returns. What comes after is better than anything we'll experience here. I'll give you another illustration of hope. Back in 1952, there was a young lady named Florence Chadwick who attempted to swim from Catalina Island to the, to the beach, to the coast of California. Now, Florence uh, was a strong swimmer. She had, she had swum the English Channel, so she was very well capable of this. She entered the water, the icy cold waters off the coast of California on a very, very foggy day, hoping that fog was going to lift, but it never did. She had her mom and several other friends in a boat next to her, along with a guy with a shotgun in case there were any sharks. Think about that. And she swam for 15 hours before she gave up. They encouraged her, you're almost there, keep up, don't stop. But the encouragement itself was not enough. She quit and got in the boat. And later on, she found out that she'd quit only a half mile from the beach. And so after several hours, as, as her core temperature was slowly being raised, as she sat under blankets, reporters were talking to her, taking pictures of her. She said, you know, it's the fog that got me discouraged. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And that's what hope is. Hope is seeing the shore. It's seeing where we're headed. And when you've got hope, nothing can stop you. When you've got hope, you've got that endurance. You've got that steadfastness. 
See, the Bible tells us enough about heaven and where we're headed to make us excited. And and one of the things it tells us is we're going to be around the people of God. You look around this room. These are the people you'll spend eternity with. It's time to learn to love them now. I I had a good friend at my last church, and he would always say to me, nearly every time we saw each other, he'd say, you better get used to me, brother, because we're going to be together a long time. And he was right. So learn to love each other now. That's another reason to not give up on the people of God. And then, and then there's one more. Oh, by the way, by the way, let me just say this. I need to step on your toes. Think about that, that image of fog and not being able to see the shore. This is why I tell people, spend more time in the Word of God and with the people of God than you spend watching the news or on social media because that's where the fog comes from. Because the more you watch the news, the more you you scroll social media, the more the world starts to shrink and the more you start to feel that nothing is working and, and everything's messed up. But the more time you spend in God's word looking at those promises, the more time you spend among God's people remembering where we're headed, you can make it. You really can. Finally, number three, draw near. Draw near is a technical term that the priests, that that was used of priests in the Old Testament. Now, why were there priests in the Old Testament? I don't know if you've noticed this yet, if you've read the Old Testament, ordinary people could not offer sacrifices to God. Once there was a tabernacle, then a temple, you had to go to the priest. You brought your bull, your goat, your offering to the priest. He took it before God. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which is around this time of year, the high priest himself would walk into the Holy of Holies in the temple through that big curtain that separated the people from the presence of God. And he would take a sacrifice and offer it to the Lord for the sins of the entire nation. That's why it was the Day of Atonement. What Jesus is saying to us through the book of Hebrews is you don't need a priest anymore because Jesus was our high priest, our once and for all sacrifice. When he died, it said the moment he died in the temple there in Jerusalem, that that veil, that, that curtain that is mentioned in verse 19 was torn in two from top to bottom by an invisible hand. It was God's way of saying, you see what the death of my son has accomplished. It has opened the door for anyone to walk into my presence. As it says again in verse 19, we can walk into his presence with confidence. Not confidence because we're so good. Confidence because he is so good. And he is so faithful. And you might say, but you don't know how messed up I am. And I probably don't. But that doesn't matter because verse 22 says, our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies are washed with pure water. If you're a believer in Jesus and you've been baptized in that baptistry or some other baptistry, that was the symbol that said, I am am clean in the sight of God and I'm being made into his image. Yes, I'm not there yet, but in his sight, I'm perfect and I'm part of his family. And that is a privilege not to be denied. Draw near to him. Don't waste the opportunity to be in the presence of God in the, in the midst of his people. And you might say, yeah, Jeff, I know, but the fact is I'm just not that spiritual. And so when you start to preach, I start to sleep. Or when I start to read the Bible, my mind starts to wander. Or when I try to sing songs, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about lunchtime or I'm thinking about what I'm going to do tomorrow. When I start, try to pray, I just can't stay focused. Listen, I want to tell you something encouraging, okay? Nobody is born spiritual. Nobody comes out of the womb just naturally drawn to spiritual things. We're made of flesh. 
and we're drawn to the things of this world. So what do you do about that? You do the same thing you would do if you went to the doctor tomorrow and found out you had some terrible disease. You would hit your knees and start praying. You and I have a spiritual ailment, and that is our lack of ability to to love the Lord like we should, and we should pray about it. We should say, Lord, wean me off of the things of this world and help me to fall in love with you. Lord, teach me to hunger and thirst for for spiritual things, for for the word of God, for your glory, for your praise. Teach me to love you more than these other things. And what happens if you keep praying that way, perseverance, endurance, you keep praying that way, suddenly Sunday morning becomes your favorite time of the week. I know some of you can't believe that. You're here under duress right now, but it will be if you want it to be. The way this ends uh, is... It says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is he talking about? Not your birthday, not Super Bowl Sunday, not Black Friday. He's talking about Judgment Day. Judgment Day is coming. I know it's tempting to believe that worship was more important back then, but now we've got podcasts we can listen to, we've got devotionals we can read, we can sit home and watch online. There's no need to gather together physically, and yet I tell you, it has never been more important for us to gather in the name of Jesus than it is right now because we've never been closer to Judgment Day than we are right now. I'll just tell you, I have no idea when Jesus is coming home. I have no idea if he's coming back in my lifetime. If I ever start to be one of those preachers that says, I think I got it figured out, just go ahead and shoot me, okay? Because I'm in direct disobedience to the word of God. But I do know this. There's never been a generation of people that we're closer to God's judgment day than we are right now. That makes this Sunday the most important Sunday in the history of the world. And next Sunday, if there is a next Sunday, will be even more important than this one. So don't miss this. Lives are on the line here. Souls are on the line. This is life and death stuff. Jesus died to make this possible. God of the universe promised to be here. And the Holy Spirit is speaking right where we're sitting. Don't miss it. Think about those Jewish believers that first read this letter. Some of them walking away from the, from the church itself, going back to the temple so they could offer those sacrifices that their forefathers had offered. And just a few years later, the Roman general Titus would, would encircle the ancient get, uh, walls of Jerusalem with his armies and would breach those walls after a long, grueling siege. And his soldiers would, would get out of control in their bloodlust, slaughtering every soul in that city and raising the temple to the ground. And it has never been rebuilt. When you think about how many of us put our stock in so many different things and ignore the body of Christ, let me tell you something. You're putting your stock in a temple that will, will be destroyed because the local church is the only institution on earth that will last forever. Nations won't last. Corporations won't last. Political parties won't last. None of the things we value will last except human beings, and the local church. So draw near to Jesus. Hold fast to your hope in Him and encourage others to stay the course.